0: All right, we're in a short Christmas series. Uh, it's called Peace on Earth. Matt did such an excellent job last week starting us off part one of the two-part series. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, get onto the website and listen, listen to Matt's excellent sermon uh, from last week. We're in the exact same text this morning. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, and I'm going to invite Rachel to come up, and she's going to read these for us.
1: But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this.
0: Thank you, Rachel. Okay. So it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Fala la 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 la-la-la-la. I, I, uh, <laughs> I've worn my Christmas sweater I do like Christmas Despite how I just said those past few words um, Out of my mouth Some Christmas songs annoy me Maybe a little bit uh, Baby it's cold outside Is probably the one that annoys me the most Because it's basically a creepy guy Who will not take no for an answer And just take the hint That the girl does not want to hang out with him anymore But anyway No matter where you stand When it comes to Christmas songs And, 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 and Christmas I, I'm sure we would all agree That there is something very special about this uh, time of the year. But it's quite fascinating that even largely as a culture, uh, even here in Canada, we've, we we kind of tip our hat uh, to Christmas every year uh, and, and, and are happy to go through a lot of uh, the kind of Christian kind of uh, observations and getting into the Christian kind of history and the story of Jesus being born to the Virgin Mary and, and all of that. But we do it in quite a sentimental way. We don't often engage with it in a way where we treat it as fact, as, as, as historical truth. I'm referring to that culturally. I know there'd be many in this room that would feel that way, but perhaps even still in this room this morning, there are some that are still would be thinking that way, would be thinking, well, no, it's, 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 it's nice, it's pleasant, but I don't know how much of it is true. And it's kind of on that basis that I want to engage with you this morning as we're looking at this topic of peace. We're looking at uh, within that this morning the topic of joy and the link between peace and joy. And there's a question that, that should be asked is, is, does God want us to be peaceful? Does God want us to be joyful? And the Bible would answer that with an emphatic yes. And the story of Christmas, in many ways, kind of sits at, at the very center of that as, as to the greatest evidence. As to why God wants us to know peace and why God wants us to be joyful and and the way through which He allows us to know peace and to know joy, it actually fully involves Christmas. But before we look at uh, our 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 kind of um, kind of built-in desire for 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 peace and joy, what what I want to look at is kind of some some cultural references because I think in the arts at times, artists can kind of put their finger on the pulse of a culture. They, they can kind of uh, act as a bit of a mirror, kind of saying back to us things that we as a culture pro- project to them. And as I'm saying, we, we, we all want to know something of peace. We all want to know something of joy. We, we We want these things deep down in our lives, but the way in which we pursue them would be very, very different all across this room. But on the whole, we think that it's associated with money. We think that it's associated... With stuff. Now, believe it or not, before Drake, there were actually other Canadian rappers. And I'm old enough to remember uh, back to 2001. There's a Canadian rapper named Jellystone. That's right, Jellystone. Does anybody remember Jellystone? Well, no, no, thanks. <laughs> My friend Johnny's seated on the back in the sofa. He had surgery two days ago, so I don't know what is flowing through his veins right now. But, but, th- but that, no, groan that you heard was from Johnny in the back. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Anyway, this rapper, Jellystone, he, he, he had a song called Money Money Can Buy Me Happiness, all right? And this is what he says in this song. This is what he says. Wake up in the morning. Try to make a move. Every day, got to work. Blue collar on the bus just to punch a card. Working nine to five. The life is hard. Left and right of Rexdale Boulevard is just factory jobs. that got most of my people sweating every day. Wipe the sweat from your brow what you're going to do now, got to pay your taxes, got to pay your rent, making sure you keep track of every cent. I always keep a little for entertainment because money can't buy me happiness, but I'm happiest when I can buy what I want any time that I want and get high when I want. And I think that he's really putting his finger on something. We even many years later, 16 years later now, would still think in our culture, maybe we would go, well, no, I, I, I recognize that maybe in its fullness, money can't buy me happiness but I also know that I'm the happiest when I've got money. So now I'm the happiest when I've, when I've got stuff. So maybe there's some sort of link there. Maybe not happiness kind of in the most full sense, but boy, it sure really seems to help. We might not be as familiar with factory jobs, you know, that he's speaking about. You know, uh, he's referencing Toronto. That's where he grew up. But for us here in downtown Ottawa, the the idea of factory jobs might seem a little bit distant to many of us in this room he talks about Rexdale Boulevard, we could swap that with Wellington or with Rideau or Elgin or whatever else. But still, what he's driving at in this song, I still speak, think speaks true uh, to how we think today. Well, maybe, maybe in its fullness, money can't buy me happiness, but I'm happiest when I have it. I'm happiest when I have stuff. I'm happiest when I have a bank balance or, or a paycheck that I look at and go, actually, no, I'm doing all right. I'm feeling, feeling pretty good right now. This rush that comes from having stuff, this rush that comes from having what we would think of as a good bank balance or, or whatever it might be, at best it's temporary. At best, it's something that is fleeting. And you all know what I'm talking about. You know, if you've gone out and you've got you know the brand new phone, I upgraded my phone a couple of weeks ago and had that you know that initial feeling of oh, it's, everything's so quick, everything works. This is great. It's got a much better camera. This is really good. This is this is going to be really really good. But even a few hours later, just kind of forgetting about that all the all the all the hopes that i had kind of put in that all the ways that i thought well this will change and improve things in my life and make me more efficient kind of well actually no it's it's not it's not just going to come from a thing it's it's not so easily solved maybe it's not a phone maybe it's a job that you've wanted and then you got it you know the the job that you were really pursuing you finally got that job maybe it was a relationship if i just if i just had a relationship then I would feel complete. Then I would feel happy. Then I would feel joyful. But then you get into that relationship and you hit a hard time or the person lets you down and you let them down and there's a fight or there's an argument or whatever it may be. And suddenly it's, oh, you know what? The way I'd put my faith in this, it seems like it's let me down. It seems like it's not going to give me complete joy, complete happiness. Last year, McLean's magazine uh, published a really interesting story about a neighborhood In Vancouver, the neighborhood is uh, known as the British Properties, and it's a very, very affluent area. It's uh, over in Vancouver, and it has kind of stunning views, um, you know, over the... uh What's the name of the bridge in Vancouver? Stanley Stanley not Stanley. Stanley Park, isn't it? Lionsgate? I was going to say Golden Gate. Different city. Uh, Lionsgate Bridge. You know, So it's got these incredible views, right? So you can imagine the prices uh, of, of the properties that you would find up there. Truly like an enclave of the 1%, right? With all of these stunning views and very, very expensive houses, many of which are in the region of kind of $4 million each at the time of the, the writing of this article. Surely this is a place of happiness, Right. You know, surely this is a place where where, where people are joyful. Surely this is a place where people flourish. But the article was highlighting that that is not quite the case. The article says this, the area's soaring property values have been eclipsed this fall, this is last year in 2016, by a different, equally dramatic measure of well-being. Fully 43% of kindergarten-age kids from the neighbourhood qualified this year as vulnerable on a standard index of child development, according to an annual State of the City report. A third more than last year, and four times the level seen 10 years ago. The kids were assessed on the early development instrument, EDI, a tool used by all 13 provinces and territories to measure school readiness based on language skills, emotional maturity, socialization, physical health, and general knowledge. 43% of kindergarten-aged kids, we're talking about five-year-olds here, 43% listed as vulnerable in a neighborhood with multi-million dollar homes, a percentage that is actually higher. The article went on to talk about how that rate is higher than some of the most impoverished areas in Vancouver, in Toronto. No doubt it didn't refer to Ottawa, but I suspect that would hold true in Ottawa as well. The rate in this very affluent neighborhood being higher in terms of five-year-olds or kindergarten aged children being listed as vulnerable. Well, why is this? Why is this? Surely this is a place of happiness. Surely, with all of this stuff, with all of this money, with these incredible gated properties, surely this is a place of contentment. Surely this is a place of joy. But clearly that is not the case. And the article went on to actually quote a uh, psychologist from Simon Fraser University. It's a really interesting quote that she says in this article. She says, pursuing money comes at the cost of time spent with friends and others close to us, which are some of our greatest sources of well-being. So let me ask you this. Could it actually be that when the Apostle Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, when he said that some 1,900, 2,000 years ago, could it be that he was actually onto something there? Could it be that our pursuit of money, of wealth, of, of, of material possession at all costs, could it be that that's actually just opening a door to to horrible, horrible things happening to us and to our loved ones? It would seem to be that that is the case. The most tragic part of this Maclean's article that I've been referring to is that the ones that seem to suffer the most in that sort of environment are, according to the article, is actually the children. It could be that the parents, a parent or both parents perhaps, Have pursued these things, they've gotten the dream job, they've gotten the dream salary, they've got you know the five, six, seven car garage with the most amazing vehicles lined up in it, the indoor pool, the private schools, all of these things. And look, let it be clear, these in themselves are not bad things. They're material things. They they don't make they, they don't have a conscience. They can't a car can't wake up in the morning and, and go, today I am deciding to do good or I'm deciding to do evil. These are things that we project onto them that we use them for. But they these are just material things. They're neither good nor bad. They just are. But in our pursuit of these things and having them at all cost, sometimes it costs us a lot. And in these cases, the article is referring to the cost that actually comes to children that are left vulnerable and in many cases left neglected so then if it's not through money if it's not through stuff how is it that we find happiness how is it that we find peace how is it that we find joy you know these these words that we become so uh, consumed with and fixed on rightly around Christmas each year these verses from Isaiah that Rachel's read to us this morning they don't just offer peace But they also offer joy. Friends, there's a link between the two, between peace and joy. And what Isaiah is talking about here in Isaiah chapter 9, he's talking about both. And a joy that comes from peace. There is a connection between peace and joy. And I would go so far as to say this. There is no joy without peace. There is no joy without peace. Think about the last episode of Stranger Things that you watched. All right? Um, we're in our, in our house, Natalia and I, we're giving this a second go. I tried it many, many months ago. I'm a great big wuss, and I have decided that I'm going to give this another go. Let me ask you a question. The last time you watched Stranger Things, do you remember the food that you were eating? I would venture to say probably not. And even if you do, do you remember having real enjoyment of that food as you were eating it, being entertained by Stranger Things, thinking, I, this is just incredible food. Or a nice drink to you. This is just so delicious. I'm savoring every bite. No, you weren't thinking that because you were scared out of your wits while you were watching Stranger Things. You weren't experiencing peace in that moment. You're watching the show and you're seeing these kids walking into bedrooms and walking up to walls. You say, no, don't go and speak to that wall. Don't go and speak to the, 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 the Demi, what's it called? the Demi, Demi Gordon, who's Gordon? Demi Gorg, Demi, Gorg, Demi, Demi God. No, that's Moana. That's what I watch more so in my house. Anyway, you're freaking out watching this show, all right? And you're not experiencing peace as you're watching it. So to know joy in that moment, that's going to be really, really hard because without peace, there is no joy. Now, that's a very trivial example, but what about Christmas? What about for those in this room that enjoy joy this Christmas? You're heading home. You're looking forward to spending time with mom or dad or with family or with friends and you know that there is joy coming and maybe you know that you've got a warm house to enjoy it with and great food to enjoy and you're able to have the luxury of putting your feet up for a while and not having to work for those few days what about those that maybe don't have that what about those who right now are not knowing peace in their lives what about those who right now are knowing conflict they're knowing tension they're knowing turmoil For them, Christmas, is that a joyful time? No. Why is it not a joyful time? It's not a joyful time because there is no peace. There's no calm. There's no rest. Friends, God wants peace for you, but he doesn't want a peace that is alone for you. He wants a peace that also flows into joy for you. Read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3. This is what Isaiah says and God's speaking these words through Isaiah. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. It's joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. For they are glad when they divide the spoil. It might be easy to think that becoming a Christian means sacrificing all future joy. Like at least in this life. You know, I, I, I feel uh, like at various times throughout my relationship with Jesus that I've spent time around Christians that should have like a, a bumper sticker that says something like miserable all the way to heaven. <laughs> like just, just people that just know no joy. in them. And you know what? That's me at times. Honestly, ask my wife, not right now, <laughs> but that is really me. At times there are times when I lose sight of the peace that God has won for me through Jesus Christ. And that I have every reason under the sun to be joyful because I know peace with God but still there are times when i can become so downcast and despondent and just convincing myself that there's just there's no joy i have no reason to be joyful when the reality is i have every reason to be joyful proverbs 10:28 says this the hope of the righteous brings joy the hope of the righteous brings joy well well great great thank you proverbs for telling us that the hope of the righteous brings joy but but what is the hope of the righteous that brings joy. You know what? What is the secret? What is it that that can provide this kind of lasting joy, rich fine you're, you're talking about how maybe we won't find it in its fullness in the job, or in the house, or in the cars, or in the money, or in the relationships. But what do we find it in? What is the hope of the righteous that brings joy? Well, Isaiah answers that for us in these verses. He speaks of a nation that is multiplied. And it's had all of its joy increased. And if you're familiar with the story of this nation, if you're familiar with the story of Israel, you know that they had times where that was not the case at all. There were times where there was heavy, heavy oppression, where, where other nations were coming in ravaging them. And they would have times where they would follow God faithfully, but then they would turn their backs on God. When times got good, when, when, when things seemed to turn in their favor, they would quickly forget God. And then God would allow these things to happen, to restore them, to draw them back to him because that was the safest place for them. And they would come back to him and they would pray prayers like what I was talking about earlier in this service, in in what was happening in Nehemiah, the the story of, of Israel, of Jerusalem at that time in Nehemiah's story as they spend time saying, God, you are so faithful to us because we have turned our back on you so many times. Israel knew this better than anyone. And if we're honest about our own Christian life, we know that true today. Without putting your hands up, like how many of you, as I'm saying that, as I'm describing Israel, you know if you're here and you have a relationship with Jesus, that I'm telling you your own story as well, and my own story. Where when things are really, really hard, we sometimes will lean into God. God, help me. God, help me. I need you now. Lift me out of this situation. I need you. I need you rescuing God in his grace. He breaks in. And he does it. And that thing that we've wanted is restored to us. And then before we know it, we're right back pursuing the other idols. We're right back pursuing the other gods. We're right back pursuing the other stuff for our joy and for our contentment. And God in his grace sometimes will allow things to happen around us that draw us back to him. Does that mean that God delights in that? Does that mean that God lets negative situations happen to us and and he kind of looks with a smile while it's happening? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that he uses these situations for his glory in restoring us back to him. Friend, what is it that you're walking this Christmas? What is it maybe even this Christmas that you're not looking forward to? What is it about maybe going home or... or, uh, you know, being around family or friends that you've not seen for a while or, or uh, whatever other example that you can give where you're thinking, oh, man, I'm just, there's parts of this that I'm just dreading. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm really not looking forward to it. What, what is that thing in your life that maybe at a time you had put your faith in for bringing you joy and bringing you contentment? Could it be that even right now that God is saying to you, my son, my daughter, you're not going to find it in that. You're not going to find it in that. You're only going to find it in me. Christmas is a time for us to pause, to slow down a bit, you know, at worst to slow down, at best is to stop and to reflect and, and and to do a bit of an audit of our own lives. And that uh, church, I want to encourage all of us, even in my own family, Natalia and I, with kids, me doing this, reflecting, what is it the things that we're pursuing? What is it the things that we believe are going to give us that complete sense of contentment, that complete sense of joy. But Isaiah reveals the way that we can know that, where that comes from. And it comes in what is revealed in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. It's not quite the answer we were expecting, is it? Isaiah is talking a few verses earlier about the multiplication of the nation, this nation that is now able to be joyful. It's joyful in the celebration of a harvest. In all of these things, peace and joy and this joy that has come. Well, what is it? Is it because of the harvest? Is it because they've won a battle? Is it in our day and age? Is it because we've got the job, the relationship, the stuff? What is the means to our joy? What is the thing that provides it? It's a child. It's a child for unto us. A child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We don't find our joy in pursuing things. Friends, you will not find peace in pursuing things that you have convinced yourself will give you peace. If I just have that, if I just have that thing, it will give me peace. We find it in knowing a person. We find it in knowing a child. Come at that first Christmas, this king born in a stable. And boy, do we love to romanticize this. You know, uh, look at some of the Christmas cards you've already given, you've already sent this Christmas, where it's just, you know, you've got the, the cattle gathered around the manger, and for some reason there's a donkey with a halo over its head, and there's a cow with a halo. And this very romantic, you know, this very... It's a sensationalized sort of image. It wasn't like that. You know what animals do when they eat. Do you? <laughs> well, you should. All right. It was gross. It was a disgusting place to be in. Let alone to bring a child into the world. And this is what this is the environment that the King of Kings was born into. The one who would bring us peace. The one who has won our joy for us, humbled himself even to that point, to come into the world in that way. You truly want to know peace. If you truly want to know joy, you need to know him. You need to know him. Whatever other thing that you're thinking you're going to find it in this Christmas, you won't. You won't in any way that's lasting. I guarantee it because I have tried it. Time and time again, I've tried it. You will not find it in a lasting way in those other things. You will find it in Christ and in Christ alone. Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, he says this, do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. How is it that the Prince of Peace says, I've not come to bring peace? Surely that's one of those kind of tensions in scripture, one of those areas of scripture that contradict itself. Maybe even for some in this room, you think you see, there's just another example why I, why I cannot believe this book, because clearly Jesus is contradicting himself. What's that about? Hey, hey, Prince of Peace, I think you've probably forgotten your lines here a little bit. What do you mean that you've not come to bring peace, but you've come to bring a sword? Supposedly, you're the, you're the Prince of Peace. Jesus is speaking about how he has come to cut off allegiances to the other things that we pursue to give us peace and to give us joy. That's what he's referring to. He's doing this for our good. In Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking about that, he doesn't list off a whole bunch of wicked, evil things that we would associate with really sinful things. He actually is talking about family. He's talking about family. How can family be bad? Jesus is saying that if you place your own family over me, if you place your sense of peace and joy and your identity in your family over me, it's going to let you down. And I've come to cut off those allegiances. I've come to show you clearly that you will not find it in those things. But if you know it first in me and fully in me, then you can truly experience these other things as the way that I've intended for you to, because you're not putting your faith in them like a savior. They will just let you down. They can't live up to that. If we try to find our joy in serving Jesus and, and worshiping Jesus, but also serving and worshiping Other things, we're essentially trying to have our cake and eat it too. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not giving you the freedom to do that. It's not, you will worship me and worship other things on the exact same level. There's no space for other things when we surrender our lives to Jesus. I'm regularly in conversations with people in my role in this church, with people who are struggling as they try to worship Jesus, but they're doing it while they're also trying to worship other things. They're maybe trying to worship the relationship that they just believe has They've, they've, they've been waiting for it and waiting for it, and finally it's come along, but maybe it's not come along in the way that they kind of hoped it would, but at least it's come along. It's in a way that they know, no, this, this isn't right. They end up convincing themselves, no, this, this is still, this, this, is, this is okay. This is okay. You know what it is? It says that thing has become a worship thing. That person, that relationship has become someone who is being worshipped and is being prized above Christ as a giver of joy. And as a giver of peace, and give it enough time, and one or the other will go. Either the false idol will go, or Jesus will be pushed aside. You cannot continue along worshiping both. Jesus says this himself. He says in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate one, or he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now in Matthew 6, where Jesus says this, he's just specifically referring to money, but that truth, that wisdom doesn't only apply to money, it can also apply to anything else that we are trying to put on the same footing as Jesus for our peace or for our joy. Given enough time, we will end up choosing one over the other. Jesus should be the desire, the object, the focus of our worship and the source for our joy, not Jesus and something or someone else. John Piper says it like this. He says, Christ must be explicit in all of our God talk. It will not do in this age of pluralism to talk about the glory of God in vague ways. God without Christ is no God. You hear that? God without Christ is no God. If you right now, if I were to ask you, name name the God in your life or the gods in your life. And at the top of that list is not God with Christ, then you're not worshiping Jesus. He's not number one in your heart. God without Christ is no God, and a no God cannot save or satisfy the soul. Following a no God, whatever his name or whatever his religion, will be a wasted life. God in Christ is the only true God and the only path to joy. Friends, as we close, I... Want you, and far more than what I want for you, God wants you this Christmas to know true peace, but not a true peace that is alone, a true peace that paves the way that leads to true and lasting joy. That doesn't mean that if you surrender your life to Jesus and you find your peace in Him, that everything in life is always joyful. It doesn't mean that if you lose a family member or a friend or somebody that you, 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 your, your brain is just disconnected from reality. It doesn't mean you never grieve. It doesn't mean you never feel pain or anguish over things, but it means that in the midst of all of it, you know hope and you know peace. And you know that while the joy or sorry, while the pain may be temporary, that the joy that is yours in Christ will be eternal, and that even in this life, the pains that we walk. The agonies that we feel, they're only temporary. There's a future glory that awaits for us where there is no pain, where there's no sickness, where there is no death, or whatever the thing, even at Christmas, that we might not look forward to. Whatever anguish or whatever discomfort might come from those things, there is a day coming for those who are in Christ. Well, they will not know any of that. They will know complete joy for all of eternity. This is the hope that we have in Christ. Jesus is the hope of the righteous that brings joy. If we were to take that verse that I read earlier in, in, in Proverbs and turn it into a question, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the hope of the righteous that brings joy. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite the band to come and get set up. We're going to worship this Jesus together. We're, we're going to sing a couple songs uh, this morning uh, before we take communion. I'll come back up and lead us into uh, communion. I'm going to explain that a little bit, but for now, let's, let's worship him. Let's worship this one who has won our peace. He has won our joy, and it can be found in him in fullness.